Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for this congregation gathered here in the way that we can lean upon each other and remind each other of the great hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it now to encourage our hearts, to strengthen our faith, to help us to walk in the path of obedience. And above all, I pray, Lord, this morning to bring hope into our hearts and into the hearts that are most in need of it this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. How is everybody doing this morning? It's good to be together worshiping the Lord and uh, spending time in God's Word. I mentioned the last time uh, that I preached uh, that the fall series would be beginning on September 9th. I want to give you a bit more of an update on that. The title of the series is going to be Created to Need, Created to Need, and it's going to explore the ways in which we as creatures of God have needs that we bring into this world that God alone can meet. And if you were around in the spring and you went through our Lenten uh, devotional guide, it's going to be along a similar theme as that. Looking at the ways, the things that we were made to need, uh, dignity, love, joy, purpose, life, safety, all these things that we need as human beings that we're tempted to run after the things of this world to try to find ways to meet those needs, but God alone is the one that is sufficient to satisfy our deepest longings. And so I'm excited about that sermon series. Again, it begins September 9th, and, uh, but I'm also uh, excited about the opportunity uh, to talk to, to your friends or your family members, your coworkers perhaps, who are exploring the Christian faith. And uh, this is an equal opportunity sermon series, as it were. And so whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, everybody has needs. Everybody comes into the world longing for purpose and significance and meaning and dignity and love. But where do we find it? This is the question. And the Bible gives us answers as to where we find it and ultimately the futility of trying to find it elsewhere. And so this is a great chance, I think, for you to invite your friends, your neighbors, your family, uh, family members, co-workers, uh, who you have been maybe dialoguing with about the gospel and that would be interested in learning about how Christianity addresses the human condition. So be prayerful about that. And let me encourage you uh, to bring someone with you uh, to the sermon series. You don't have to bring them for the entire thing. If they jump in in the middle, it's, it'll be fine. You don't have to start at the front end to make sense of all of it. But encourage you to bring someone. So that'll be taking place October, uh, September and October. But for now, we're continuing in our Matthew sermon series. We're getting right to the end of it. We're going to do Matthew chapters 26 and 27, as we've already read this morning, and then concluding uh, with the sermon series on September 2nd on Labor Day. Our text today, drawn from Matthew 26 and 27, come to the very end of Jesus's passion narrative and recount the suffering that Jesus has all along been predicting uh, would come to pass. And there are any number of ways to preach uh, these two chapters, but I want to focus on Jesus' suffering as a model for how we ourselves are to handle sufferings. Jesus' suffering, of course, is for us the ultimate uh, means by which we don't undergo ultimate suffering under God's judgment. But the gospel writers in the New Testament not only present Jesus' suffering as in a, as an atoning sacrifice that removes us from ultimate suffering. But we're also told in Scripture that Jesus' suffering is for us a model for our own suffering. So Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews, in recounting the race of life that all of us are called to run, 
evokes Jesus' example and says to his readers that we must keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, that we must look to him and how he ran his race, because as we look to him and how he ran his race in the midst of suffering, it provides for us a model for how we are to run our race in the midst of suffering. So not just looking at Jesus's suffering as an atonement, as in a sacrifice, however important that is, but also Jesus's suffering as a model for us of how to be faithful in the midst of our own points of suffering. None of us, of course, like to suffer, and no doubt there are varying degrees of suffering uh, that we here in this congregation represent this morning. Some of us are doing quite well. Others of us are doing uh, very with much difficulty. Reading the welcome registers each week, I see uh, all the ways that we are both rejoicing but also struggling as a congregation. And none of us like suffering. Sometimes we suffer because like Jesus, we've made a hard choice of obedience. And to follow in the path of obedience to God inevitably brings us into suffering. Some of us sometimes suffer simply because we live in a broken world. And because bad things happen in a broken world. And sometimes we suffer because of our own foolish choices, where we've done things or made decisions or said things that have brought about suffering in our life. I think often it's the case in my life that it's a combination of all of the above at various points. But I think Jesus' example about how to endure suffering faithfully has application to all types of suffering. So wherever you find yourself this morning, if you're here this morning with an acute place of pain, then then know that Jesus' example, he lived this life and it was recorded for us in Scripture to help us understand how we to endure our own suffering. So how was it that Jesus endured faithfully in obedience in the midst of suffering? And what does this mean for us as we stumble forward in our own imperfect obedience in the midst of our own suffering. I've organized the sermon, as you might have seen from the title, around three cups that Jesus drinks from in these chapters, or alternately doesn't drink from. Maybe you picked up on these in the scripture reading itself, but we have, of course, the cup of communion that Jesus celebrates with his disciples there on the night that he was betrayed. We have the cup of judgment that Jesus wants to be free from in the garden that he pleads with the Lord to deliver him from. And then we have the cup of escape on the cross where the drink is offered to him on the sponge. Now, technically, not all of these are literal cups. You have the literal cup at the cup of communion. The cup of God's judgment is a metaphor. And the sponge on the stick isn't actually a cup. But I thought three cups of Christ made for a better sermon title than the three drinks of Christ or the two cups of Christ and a sponge on a stick. So I've gone with the three cups of Christ. Don't send me an email later on this week rebuking me for not uh, being literal enough, but give me some artistic license. So we have these three cups of Christ, each cup representing a key principle in how to follow in Jesus' footsteps. We're going to start with Gethsemane the cup of judgment, and then we'll move to the cup of escape on the cross, and then we'll conclude with the cup of communion. So what does Jesus' example in the midst of suffering teach us? We look first to Gethsemane and the cup of judgment. In Gethsemane, we see first, I think this is the first thing that Jesus' example teaches us, is that we should plead earnestly to God for deliverance. When we encounter suffering, we should plead earnestly to God for deliverance. 
The night has come at last, the night that Jesus has been saying to his disciples would come. Jesus retreats into Gethsemane, which was a garden. It's a place that he would go for peace and solitude with his disciples to pray. He takes his disciples with them to the garden, and then he takes Peter, James, and John away from the disciples to join him in prayer. He sits them down, asks them to pray, and then he moves uh, further away from them, and he begins to pray. He tells Peter, James, and John to watch with him in prayer because he, his soul is sorrowful to the point of death. One translator translates Jesus' sentiment here as, I'm, I feel so bad, I feel like I could die. I think that's a good way to capture how Jesus feels in this moment. He feels so overwhelmed by what is about to happen. He feels like he could just die right there. Have you ever felt like that? Not all of us have. Some of us have felt like that. Suffering so acute, so psychologically or physically painful that we are enveloped in a fog of black confusion and despair. That feeling like the walls are closing in and there is no escape, there is no way out perhaps because of poor choices that we have made that we feel like we can't unmake, perhaps poor choices that have been made against us. Perhaps like Jesus, we've been asked to walk a path of obedience that is so terrifying, we would almost rather just die and be done with it than have to take another step. That's what Jesus felt like on this last night. He knows it's been coming. He's been telling his disciples it's been coming, but now he is here at the 11 o'clock hour, and he's faced up against it, and the, the crushing weight of what he faces is so intense, he feels like he could die. The crucifixion, of course, was no easy thing. Crucifixions in the Roman Empire were designed to be maximally painful, to bring about maximum physical suffering, and they were also designed to be maximally shameful. They were done publicly. Uh, the, the accused was, the, the executed was stripped down and presented for all to see. Roman crucifixions were reserved only for foreigners. As a Roman citizen, you were, uh, you were free, even if you got a capital punishment from ever having to uh, be crucified. It was reserved uh, for criminals, uh, for escaped slaves, and for foreigners. But no Roman citizen, no matter what, could be crucified with this kind of, uh, with this kind of execution. But I don't think it was just the prospect of being crucified, the actual physical crucifixion that had Jesus so overwhelmed. I don't want to make light of the crucifixion, but, but being crucified wasn't what made Jesus' death unique. We know about crucifixion here, and it's, it's more common in our understanding in our culture because it was the way in which our Lord was crucified. But, but there were many forms of, of capital punishment throughout the Roman Empire that were uh, extreme as well, but we don't know about those quite to the same degree because Jesus wasn't killed in that way. He was killed on a cross. And then when we think about crucifixion, we think about Jesus. But Jesus was not the only one that was killed on a Roman cross. There were thousands and tens of thousands of people that were killed on Roman crosses before Jesus was crucified. And there were thousands and tens of thousands or more of people that were killed on Roman crosses after Jesus was crucified. You might have heard of Spartacus who led a slave rebellion in the Roman Empire. And when he was defeated, 6,000 of his followers were captured and all 6,000 were crucified. So to be crucified in the Roman Empire was horrendous, but it was not unique. And Jesus' death on a Roman cross was not unique. 
What was unique about Jesus's death was that he was being asked to drink the cup of God's judgment. In some mysterious way, Jesus was taking upon himself the sin of the whole world, drinking down to the dregs the punitive death and suffering that had befallen humanity. Jesus wasn't just dying. He was dying in an atonement and in a sacrifice that took upon him in some way, some mysterious way that theologians scramble around to explain, but but taking upon himself the entire sin of the world. That's what made Jesus' death unique. And Jesus didn't want to do it. He did not want to do it, and he did not pretend otherwise. We see here in the garden that he prays earnestly three times for the cup to pass him by. He wanted some other way for God's plan of redemption to be accomplished. In Hebrews, the epistle, the writer says this in chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. The author of Hebrews is referencing this episode in the garden. Jesus, so overwhelmed by the prospect of the cross and all that it will entail, that he offers up loud cries and tears, pleading with God to take away from him this cup. There's no shame in this. There's no merit in drinking up suffering. Jesus doesn't want to suffer. We don't want to suffer. And he prays with God to take the suffering away from him. That's the first lesson I think we see here in Jesus' example of suffering, is that when we encounter suffering, we should plead earnestly with God that he would grant deliverance and take the suffering away. I think the reason, though, there are two reasons, at least, why we don't do this. One, perhaps, is a reason that is more germane to my Christian uh, friends. Uh, but I think even as, as Christian, or my non-Christians friends, rather, but I think even as Christians, we can fall into this as well. Maybe as Christians or as nominal Christians or perhaps not yet Christians, we might think about offering up prayers to God. But when we think about our loud cries and petitions, they don't go to God. They go to our parents, they go to our boss, they go to our therapist, they go to our government, that when we are desperate, we look to anything else besides God to deliver us. Of course, we want God on our side and we throw him a few arrows to heaven, prayers, but our loud cries and our petitions and our prayers, they go to the, to the powers of this world to grant us deliverance. But nothing can save us in the end. Jesus is faced now with the prospect of going to the grave. He's faced with the prospect of death, and he recognizes that he has to bring his prayer and his petition for deliverance to God. That's the place to bring it. Sometimes we don't do this because we're distracted by other powers, but sometimes I think, and this is uniquely Christian, I think we don't do it because we're afraid to be disappointed. We're afraid to bring our earnest pleas for deliverance to God because we're afraid we'll be disappointed. I think this is a distinctly Christian problem because as Christians, we've placed our hope in God. We recognize he is our only hope, but what if we come to him as our only hope and he doesn't come through? Well, then what's left? Nothing's left. So we don't come to him because we don't want to be disappointed. A way to 
I've seen this happen sometimes, I think, even in the ways that we pray for, pray for healing. In a previous ministry that I was uh, part of, uh, we would do similar to how we do here at Calvary, that uh, when someone in the congregation was ill, they would come to the pastors and the elders, and they would ask for prayer, and we would pray over them and pray that, that they would be healed. And so this happened at one point, and a lady uh, came to the, to the pastors and the elders and was looking for a prayer of healing, and, and uh, so it came to the, was invited to come to the elder meeting, and, and that particular elder meeting, I was late, and so normally what would happen is as the, the individual would come and they would explain their situation and why they were requesting prayer, and then we would gather around them, lay hands on them, and pray. But I came late enough that I had just missed the explanation of why the lady was coming for prayer, and they had already begun praying. So I came in around the circle, I laid my hands on the dear woman, and I was listening to the prayers because I wanted to hear what it is that she had come for prayer for, what aspect of healing that she needed so I could join in with the prayer. But as we continued to pray, there was prayers for peace, there were prayers for endurance, there were prayers for faith, there were prayers for hope, and then we closed. And I never found out until later that she had breast cancer. And I thought to myself, why did we not pray that she would be healed from her cancer? Because that's why she had come. And listen to the elders, if I ever come looking for prayer and the other pastors for healing, I want you to pray for healing. I mean, you can pray for peace and you can pray for, for growth and all of that. But if I'm coming, I want prayer for healing, just to be told up front here. But I think the reason that we don't, and I don't know why the folks there didn't pray for healing, but I, I think when I look at my own heart, sometimes I don't pray prayers like that because I don't want to be disappointed. Because if you pray for peace and you pray for growth and you pray for endurance, all of these are rather unquantifiable. They can't be shown to not have been granted. But what if we gather around and we pray earnestly that someone be delivered from cancer and they're not? Well, then what does that mean? So then we don't want to answer that question, so we just couch all of our prayers and we hedge all of our bets. And we don't earnestly ask God for deliverance because we don't want to be disappointed. But Jesus came before the Father in his hour of need and he earnestly pled with God to be delivered. The answer, of course, might be yes, and as we see throughout the pages of Scripture and even listen to testimonies in other people's lives, we know that when we come to God and we plead earnestly, sometimes He does deliver us. Sometimes He takes away the cup that we might otherwise have to drink. But sometimes the answer is no, as it was for Jesus. In Hebrews 5, 7, going back again to this passage that helps us understand this moment in Jesus' life, we've already read it, but listen to the end of this verse. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. If this was the only verse, if we only had Hebrews 5, 7, if that was, that was the only verse we had to, to understand what had happened to this man Jesus so many long years ago, we would read that verse and we would think, he offered up cries to his father. He pled to be delivered, and he was heard. Well, what good news. He was delivered, but he wasn't delivered. He was heard. And perhaps you have indeed forsaken all other sources of hope. Like Jesus, you have 
come to the Father and you are pleading for deliverance with loud cries and with tears and you haven't been delivered, but you have been heard and you needn't think that you're the only one who's prayed to a silent heaven and received no answer. Jesus' last words on the cross that we've already read Quoting from David in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, in his hour of need, calls out to the Father for deliverance, and the answer is no. And just like with Jesus, if God's answer is no, then it's for a reason. We have the hindsight, of course, of Jesus' life to know that Jesus' last words on the cross weren't the final words of his life, but God spoke a word of resurrection over him and raised him from the dead. And so we know that if if God will not deliver us from the suffering, if he does not take away the cup that he has asked us to drink, that there is a reason for it. And even if he has not granted us deliverance, he has granted us an audience and he hears us. So we must plead with God to remove the point of suffering, to grant us to deliverance. But what do we do if we plead earnestly to God for deliverance and end up like Jesus being crucified? Where do we go from there? Sermon's a little bit like a flow chart. You know, you answer the first question. I've pled with God for deliverance. Was it granted? Yes. Okay, you're done. You can, you can go home. But if it was not granted, then where do you go from here? Go to point two in the sermon, which is this. Don't take illegitimate shortcuts. We go to Matthew 27, 45 through 50, where we see Jesus on the cross. He's been on the cross now for the majority of the day. He's suffered greatly. He's at the, this crucial moment. The full weight of his atoning work now is crushing down upon him. He's cried out in the words of David in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's misunderstood in this cry to be calling for Elijah. And so those that are near him who hear him call out, they go and they take the sour wine on a sponge and they hold it up on a pole for him to drink. He tastes it, Mark Gospel tells us that when he tastes it, he doesn't uh, drink it, but he turns away from it. The sour wine uh, was something that was used uh, similar to how we would think of morphine to alleviate the suffering of those at the end of their lives. And the Jewish women were told from different sources in antiquity would gather around the Jews who were being crucified by the Romans and they would have a jar full of wine that was mixed with our narcotic. And the narcotic was used to deaden the pain that was so excruciating in the, in the crucifixions. And so when the person was at the peak of their pain, they would come and they would dip the sponge in this narcotic and they would hold it up for the condemned person to drink to deaden the pain. So this is an act of mercy. The women or whoever it was, whether it was women or maybe uh, some uh, bystanders who are moved with pity, they see Jesus calling out. They think that he's calling out for deliverance. They know deliverance isn't going to come. So they, they grab hold of, the, of, the, of the, the, the wine, the sour wine they offered up to Jesus to drink. But Jesus doesn't drink it. The text here in the Gospels doesn't tell us why he doesn't drink it, but when we go back into Hebrews, which is interpreting all of this for us, we see why it is that he didn't drink it. 
The Bible's teaching isn't that Jesus came as the Lamb of God merely to die, but that he came as the Lamb of God to suffer and to die. Back again to Hebrews 5, 8 through 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus, in order to be the source of eternal salvation, it was necessary not only that he die, but that he had to suffer. He had to enter into the fullness of the human condition. Human beings do not always go gracefully and peacefully into the dark night. Death comes to varying degrees of painfulness for different human beings, for different ones of us, but death is full of spittle and coughs and labored breathing and pain and fear. And the Bible does not romanticize death, never presents death as a good thing or a blessing. Not all deaths, of course, are as bad as they could be, but some deaths are more awful to think about than we even can bear. And Jesus didn't come to save us from a sanitized death, from the easy death, but from death at its worst. And for the one who had come to redeem all of humanity, that necessarily involved suffering, the suffering of death. For Jesus to seek to alleviate the suffering on the cross by taking the sour wine was to short-circuit the very thing that God was calling him to do. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood at this point. The application here is not that we should refuse the aids that help us alleviate our suffering. Jesus first cries out to be delivered from suffering. And if God provides a means, a legitimate means to be delivered from suffering, then we should take it. That's why we're crying out to him earnestly for deliverance. Jesus had a unique mission in the world to drink up our suffering. That's not our mission in the world. Our mission in the world is not to drink up the suffering of the world. The application here is that we should refuse the aids that interfere with our commitment to obeying God's call upon our lives. Nothing wrong with seeking relief if we have a legitimate way of escape from our suffering, but we mustn't seek relief in ways that are unfaithful to God, even when offered by well-intended and sympathetic friends. How tempting it is to drink the cup of escape, to scoot out the side when the pressure builds, to make for the exit when things get hot. Jesus is gone to the cross in obedience, and he has suffered greatly up to this point. And here he is at the final moment and how easy it would have been in this moment to deaden the suffering that he had been called to experience. This is, I think, his last temptation. To be given this sour wine, to be free at least a little bit of the excruciating pain. But he turns it away. He turns it down because for him, it was illegitimate. And so he is faithful to God and he is obedient to God and does not take the way of escape to alleviate illegitimately the suffering that he is experiencing. Our obedience to God, of course, is not tested when we are on the open road, the sky is blue, when the sun is shining bright. Our obedience to God is when we are in the shadowed valley, when we can't see our way forward, when fear lurks behind every corner and we are in doubt and in confusion, that's when we're tempted to take the easy way out. To choose the path of safety and expediency 
We're tempted to do it when things get hard, even if it means taking the path of sin. Where are you tempted to take the easy way out? What's the cross that you are bearing in which you are tempted to grab on to some illegitimate way of relief, some means of hope? Perhaps your marriage is hard and you are thinking of ways to scoot out from under the pressure of that commitment that you have made to God and to your spouse. Perhaps you are getting pressure from your your uh, employer to cut corners at work. You're, you're being pressured to compromise your integrity. Things you know wouldn't be right, but there's excruciating pressure coming from above and you can't see an easy way out of it. Perhaps pressure from your friends at school, pressuring you to make choices and decisions that you know that you shouldn't be making, but it seems like your whole social standing and network is tied up in the relationships and you feel the weight of expectation to make these choices that you know are wrong. I don't know exactly what it is that you're going through. And I don't pretend to be in your shoes or having walked a road as hard as the road that perhaps you're being faced with this morning. I don't want out of my marriage. I'm not being encouraged by my employer to cut corners at work. You should all be grateful to know that about your elder board. I'm not getting pressure from my peers that I work with to do things that are wrong. Pastor Johnny, sometimes I have to work, watch out for a little bit. But, uh, you know, God's grace is sufficient, so we just move on. I don't know what your situation is. And I don't know the pain or the pressure that is upon you. And I'm not appealing to you based on my experience, but on Jesus' experience. That's why we look to Christ. Because whatever situation that you are facing, the temptation that you have to find relief in illegitimate ways, Jesus knows exactly what it is that you are feeling. He's felt it more than you. He knows what it is to walk a path of obedience that not only feels like a suffocating death, but literally is a suffocating death. Can you imagine what it would be to hang on the cross, suffocating to death, and not take relief that is offered to you? He knows what it is to be in your shoes. The wrong thing doesn't become the right thing just because the right thing is a hard thing. The wrong thing doesn't become the right thing just because the right thing is a hard thing. What is the sour wine that is being offered to you? What is the illegitimate way of escape that you are tempted to take? Jesus passed on the way of escape. He passed the cup of escape because he had faith in his God. The life and the resurrection of Jesus teaches us that suffering through obedience to God is better than freedom from suffering through disobedience. Suffering through obedience to God is better than freedom from suffering through disobedience. Jesus' example on the cross would say to you that when an illegitimate way of escape is offered for you, don't take it. Don't do it. But some points of suffering that confront us, there is no way of escape, not even an an illegitimate way of escape. We're placed in situations sometimes perhaps where there is no way out and maybe we know ourselves honestly enough to know that 
If there was an illegitimate way out, we would take it, but we can't even find an illegitimate way out. We're just simply stuck. So here, Jesus on the cross, he's asked earnestly for the cup to pass from him. The father's answer was no. He has let pass by the cup of escape on the cross because it would have been illegitimate for him to alleviate his suffering. I want to bring this all back to the first cup that Jesus drank the night before it all began, the cup of communion, the cup of the covenant, because it's the cup of the covenant that gives him, I think, the capacity to drink the cup of judgment and to pass on the cup of escape. Jesus, when he gathers his disciples together on that first night to come back to these words that have already been read, He took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. He took a cup when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins. Then he says this, and listen closely, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. The cup that Jesus gave to his disciples, the cup of blessing that he blessed, the cup of the covenant in his blood, really was the same as the cup of wrath that he had to drink in the garden. And we have the blessing because Jesus drank the judgment. The cup of judgment became the the cup of blessing for us. But Jesus says this. He says, there is a day coming when this cup of blessing, this cup of the covenant that I give to you, I will drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus went into the climax of his suffering with faith to believe that there was a day coming in the kingdom of God when God would make all things new, when all suffering and all tears and all pain and all unmet expectations would be drowned in the glory and the love of God. And so why did Jesus drink the cup of judgment? How did he have faith to pass on the cup of escape? Because he believed in the cup of the covenant and that God would not fail him and that God would be true to his word and that God would raise him from the dead and establish a kingdom where all of the hope of all the people would be met. And so it is the cup of the covenant that is the cup of hope that gives us the capacity to endure the places of pain and sorrow and suffering that God does not deliver us from in this life. Because this life isn't the end. That there is a kingdom that's coming that is filled with hope and joy and peace. And so the cup of Christ, the three cups that we see, teach us to plead with God for deliverance. But if he doesn't grant it, to endure with faithfulness and not take the way out, and to place our hope finally and firmly in the kingdom of God that is coming. I want to invite the, those that will be serving communion to come on forward. We'll take it now together. If you are here this morning you are not a believer, you are not a member of the covenant, then I would encourage you during this time to reflect upon the promise of God and what Jesus is offering in the cup of communion. He is offering a cup of blessing that transcends and dwarfs all the places of suffering that we experience in this life. And that cup could be for you too. 
by placing your faith and your confidence in Jesus Christ, your hope in him, believing that he has taken upon himself the judgment and suffering of the world so that we could be free from the judgment of God. That is the message of the gospel, and it is the hope of all people. And I would encourage you to think about where you're going to look for hope instead of Jesus, because we can't live without hope. All of us need hope. Where are you going to find your hope if not in the hope offered by God in Christ? I'm going to invite you in a moment here to come forward. We're going to uh, do as we've done in the past. We're, we'll have you come forward. We don't need to all rush forward at once, but come and, and take from the elements as you do. Those that are serving to you will, will offer you the, 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 the cup and the, and the bread, saying the, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And as you receive the elements, let it be a reminder for you of the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that sustained Jesus through his suffering and the hope that can sustain us through our suffering. If you are gluten-free, we have some gluten-free wafers here at the center of each of the tables. And there are people that will be serving up in the balcony as well as those uh, that are in the back in the narthex. So if you're seated towards the rear, you can make your way uh, back there as well. Let's hold the elements, come and receive them, and then hold them, take them back, and we will take them together at the end. But you come forward now uh, as you are able and ready.